Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The word of the Lord. The first Sunday of Advent is rather timely for many of us. I'm not sure if anybody else is experiencing that post-Thanksgiving hangover, but it happens. Sometimes it's an hour afterwards. Sometimes it's the whole experience. My favorite Thanksgiving movie is the only good Thanksgiving movie. It's Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving. The very beginning of that is actually a football scene. Lucy, holding a football, says, come on, Charlie Brown, I'll hold the ball and you kick it. Charlie Brown's been around this block before. Ha, you'll pull it away at the last minute and I'll land flat on my back and kill myself. Lucy says, it's a Thanksgiving tradition. Football, the opening kick. It's a great honor, Charlie Brown. It wins him over. As he's walking away, he says, well, maybe I should do it talking to himself. He says, besides, she wouldn't try to trick me on a traditional holiday. He starts running towards the ball. This time, I'm going to kick the ball clear to the moon. Arg! And as it happens every time, Charlie Brown lands flat on his back in frustration and defeat. So Thanksgiving happened, and just a few weeks before that was this thing called an election. I'm not sure which of those two characters you feel more like post-election. Angry, anxious, and flat on your back? Or standing elated and smug? We are a politically divided country. I don't know if you guys knew this. One of the things that's come out in this political division is fear. There's a lot of fear on both sides. If she becomes president, if he becomes president, 
and a lot of bitterness. I think no matter who won, there was going to be protests. I think the thing that has most been unsettling to me is the way that most self-identified Christians have responded to our cultural moment, also driven by great fear. Now, when there's fear amongst Christians, you see one of two extremes. One extreme is the extreme of avoiding and escaping. And that even builds into this whole Advent hope of, I'm just hoping to escape this place. That is a, that is a fear, fear-driven escape mentality. The opposite we also see and have seen in this cultural moment is Christians filled with a lot of anger, blaming, and defensiveness, bitterness, putting false hopes, and being driven by deep anger. And I think it's not uncommon for people outside of the church to say, we don't look very much like Jesus anymore. Michael Gerson, a Washington Post editorialist, noted his own anger and anxiety after the election, and he felt hypocritical about it. He realized it was not fully Christian. He wrote that Advent has come at the perfect time a few weeks after the election. He said, after a dismal and divisive campaign season, many of us need the timely reminder of the Advent season that people matter more than all our political certainties, that God is in control despite our best efforts, and that some conflicts can't be won by force or votes, only by grace. At this season in our cultural life, just as every season in every culture's life, we need Advent. And it's not just political corrosiveness and division that needs Advent. Just look around the world or at your own life, right? I mean, when you read the newspaper headlines, it involves things like atrocities in Syria or under the Islamic State, trafficking and slavery at its worst ever, extreme poverty in parts of the world where they will not see food on their table. You get closer to home, of course, it's, it's not all that much better. Over the past year or two, we've seen racism rear its head. Not much different than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Fear and hatred towards somebody who is from another country because they've just come here recently. Opioid epidemic that's sweeping the nation with addiction. And poverty. And you get closer, even closer to home, and we have broken marriages, people dealing with sickness, and then there's just our our own sin. And then at the end of it all is death. Even the best things like Thanksgiving, which is supposed to be about extended family gathering together, is very often the most difficult time. Did you know that relationships are hard? Close relationships are very hard because we are sinful and broken. And it's easy for us to then turn our thoughts to that verse in the Christmas carol, but it's not much of a Christmas carol, of mid, it came upon a midnight clear, where the hymn writer says, and ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way, with painful steps and slow. 
Many of us have come here today feeling that crushing load. The painful steps of life in a sinful and fallen world with sinful and fallen lives. And that's why the season of Advent is is a great one, because it holds things in tension that we really need. Advent offers us a chance, in a sense, to press a restart button, to pause, to repent, and to reorient Godwards. Advent is marked by two main themes, longing and hope. That word longing is things aren't as they should be. It's a sober recognition that this world is fallen and broken, and so we lament, we cry for this world. But it's also the sober recognition that we are sinners. It's not them that are to blame. We are all deeply broken and sinful, and so it is a season of repenting. But it's also a season of hope. Advent is a time of trying to find our true hope, and if you've been finding it in a political party, let me invite you this season to re-find it in Jesus. We need Emmanuel. We need God with us, and ultimately, we need Him to come again. Advent is the reminder that while this world is what we have, this life is what we have, it's not all that there is. And we can have hope, but we need grace to have that hope because we need God to intervene in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in the Advent season from a prison cell, suggested prison is a good way to think about Advent. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom is to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. And many of us can resonate with that. We feel the trappings, the imprisonment of our lives. We long for freedom, but we're dependent on the Lord to set us free. And so we look for that day. See, the Old Testament uses this refrain in the prophets. It uses this word, that day. That day, basically, anytime you read that in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the prophets, that day means that day when God comes and arrives in order to bring justice and salvation and restoration. For hundreds of years, the Israelites realized that their world, their nation, their peoplehood was not as it was meant to be. It didn't become what they thought it was going to be under King David, under Solomon. It never realized the fruition of God's peace and shalom. And so they longed for that day when God would come and right all wrongs. He would bring salvation, He would bring judgment, and He would restore and heal and bring true shalom. Isaiah, a book that we're going to be looking at the next few weeks because it's part of our lectionary readings, is a prophetic book of warning and judgment, God's going to come, and of longing and hope, God's going to come. It's very adventy. And one of the most adventy little phrases is there in verse 4 of chapter 2, which we just had read. When the Lord comes, he shall judge on that day, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation 
shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. On that day, swords turned into plows. Just stop and think about that as we look around our nation, our world, our own family lives, our own physical lives. Instruments of death, of war, become farming tools, tools for growth, for prosperity and flourishing, for well-being. What Isaiah is pointing to is that on that day when the Lord comes, it will be a returning to Eden. It's almost like going from Genesis 4 when Cain decides to kill his brother Abel out of jealousy and going back to Genesis 1 and 2 when the Lord said, it is good, be fruitful and multiply, and they were naked and unashamed. On that day, the swords will become farming tools. It's a message of longing and of hope. And Isaiah is trying to assure us that there is a God, even if it doesn't look like it in the world around you, and that God intends shalom. He intends wholeness and reconciliation and well-being. And when he writes this, he's not suggesting how to build a utopian peace society, because underscoring all of this in Isaiah 2 is that it's only God's presence that can reconcile and restore. It is only God's presence that can reconcile and restore. Advent is about God coming to us. But in a sense, it's also about us coming to God. We see this in other parts of Isaiah chapter 2. It starts in verse 2 when the prophecy is coming out. It shall come to pass... In the latter days, that's in this chapter's Isaiah's way of saying on that day, it shall come to pass on that day that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow to it. See, the mountain of the Lord was Mount Zion, it was Jerusalem. And at that day and age, 700 years before Christ, that was the only place you could find Yahweh. There was a temple, and on that, in that temple was the Holy of Holies, and that's where God dwelt. So if you wanted to meet the God of the Bible, you had to go to Jerusalem. And what's amazing is that this passage suggests all nations, all peoples, all ethnicities will come to it. You see, the ancient Near Eastern world was a politically divided world, ethnically adverse. In that day and age, there was such ethnic division amongst nations that they were in constant war trying to conquer and enslave one another. There was absolutely bitter hatred of other races, other ethnicities, other nations. And tied into that, that was a national deity. Every nation had its own god or gods. And the battles weren't just about land, it was also about whose God is truly God. Yahweh or Baal? Yahweh or Asherah? Yahweh or Melech? Molech. And so what this is suggesting is that the nations are coming to Yahweh. In order to come to Yahweh, 
You had to drop your own God, your own national allegiances. No one did that. But as the passage goes on to say, and many peoples, verse 3, many people, peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. On that day, all nations will realize that they need the way, the path, His way, His path, and the way you get that is His Word. These are nations, proud nations, recognizing, admitting their need. They need God's way, and they need God's Word. This is suggesting nations are going to submit their cultural assumptions and personal priorities for the one true God. It was absolutely unheard of and radical back then. And of course, it is today, isn't it? We live in this day. What is, what is the cultural moment of this day? One writer suggested that this day is defined by the gospel of self-fulfillment. What's the gospel of self-fulfillment, the, the, the culture that we live in? It's that everyone must live their own truth and personal happiness is the goal, even the duty of every person. The gospel of self-fulfillment is everyone must live their own truth, and personal happiness is the goal, the duty of every person. And this isn't just for those outside the church. Christians do this too. You see, when we critique our culture, what are we critiquing? We're critiquing the air we breathe. We're trying to recognize the water we swim in, and we swim in, we breathe the air of American individualistic relativism. We are going to, by nature, buy into the gospel of self-fulfillment. And we see this in the way that many Christians play out their own individualistic relativism. Here's one way that Christians do it. We don't say it externally. We don't actually say this to people, but we live as if no one has a say in our lives. Why? Well, I've got a Bible, and I've got the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. But what's the check and balance on me reading Scripture bizarrely? I've got the Holy Spirit. It told me to do this. That is an individualistic reading of Christianity. It's a very American way of approaching it. We are meant to read Scripture in community and through history and have checks and balances on our lives, but we don't live that way, Christian or not. We blend our Christianity with our personal views and our cultural values, and it's why it's easy for Christianity to be co-opted by political parties because we read our Christianity from our politics and not the other way around. The gospel of self-fulfillment. One blogger who self-identifies as a Christian wrote this, you need to be comfortable in your own skin, your own knowing, that you become more interested in your own joy and freedom than in what others think of you. Now, this actually sounds right. 
but it falls just short. And it falls just short because while Christianity would say, don't worry about what others think of you, it doesn't say what matters is what you think of you. Christianity says, what does God think of you? A few weeks back, we heard the story of David dancing before the Lord in front of all the people of Israel, and his wife mocked him. You're making a fool of yourself in front of all the people, David, when you're dancing like that. And David said, I'm not dancing for them. I'm dancing for the Lord. So the gospel is very different. It calls us to dance for the Lord, not for men, but also not for ourselves. What matters is who God is and what he says about us. That's where we find our identity, our purpose, our calling. Be so comfortable in your own skin, your own knowing, that you become more interested in your own joy and freedom than in what others think of you is neo-Christianity. It's an Americanized gospel. It's the same as another writer who's tried to sum this up by saying, God should be equally and unequivocally committed to my happiness as I am. You laugh, but we do this. We want our own way, and we assume, hey, Jesus has got to be cool with it because it makes me happy. Jen Pollock Michael, writing in Christianity Today, said, the good life, the good life has been radically redefined according to the benefit of the individual. God's glory, society's health, the community's well-being have been displaced. We are all on the throne now. The issue, the issue in our day is the lordship issue. Who or what has authority in my life? How do I decide what is right and true? Look, if you identify as a Christian, you need to start with the authority question. There's a reason why 85% of those outside of the church think Christians are hypocrites. It's because we are. We don't have a solid common authority by which we decide what is right and what is true. And as a result, we might say, for instance, we're pro-life, but if you play it out, we're partially pro-life. Or there's certain sins we're very focused on, like the sexual ones, but the materialistic ones, we push those aside, especially with Christmas coming. Who or what is your authority? Christians need to figure this out. And if you're outside, if you're trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing, it's the key issue for you too. All the hang-ups you have about Christianity actually boil down to the authority issue. Who or what is your authority? Who or what decides your identity, your purpose, what's right and true? Jesus or something else? It's either or. Jesus was very loving, kind, and gentle, but he also said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claimed God's word and God's ways are the authority. And that has implications. It means that even, even if something is what you really want, 
and is culturally okay and makes you happy? What matters first and only is what does God say about it? The gospel is meant to be the glasses through which we see the world and ourselves rightly, not the other way around. And if the gospel is truly our authority, Jesus Christ crucified and risen is the true Lord in our lives, the gospel will make all of us uncomfortable. He will make conservatives and liberals and all Americans uncomfortable. Look, let's put it pretty bluntly. To some on one side of the political divide, we need to hear this. Jesus cares about black lives and about immigrants, including the illegal ones. He cares about transgendered people. For those on the other side of the political divide, you need to hear that Jesus cares about what you do with your body. Jesus makes a claim on your sexuality and on how you do or define relationships. For all Americans, Jesus actually cares what we do with our money, with our politics, with our lifestyle, with everything. With everything. With everything. Everything is meant to be under his authority. He cares about them because he actually made you and loves you. That's why he cares. And of course, this is not easy. It takes faith to believe that God has your best interests in mind, even when it's going to cost you. And that's why it's by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we need it. How do we Advent well? In Isaiah 2, why is everyone going to Mount Zion? Well, we just said it, right? It's because it was the dwelling place of Yahweh. You had to go to Jerusalem to get God. But Christmas, which Advent leads up to on our calendar, says God has already come to us. Emmanuel is Jesus with us, God with us. And when God came to be with us, what did he do? Jesus surrendered his rights and his happiness in obedience to the Father and out of love for us. He came to reconcile us, to restore us through his death on the cross. He surrendered all to give us all. The Bible says he's coming again. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about his coming again. In verse 30, we hear that the nations are mourning. Why are they mourning? Because when he comes again, he's going to come as judge, and they're going to realize, oh, oh, that guy was the one? Now what do we do? It will be like in the days of Noah, 
we read in the verses 38 to 41. And just to clarify, um, and I'm glad to talk to you about this on the side, I'm not a big fan of rapture theology because I think it's actually falsely identified in this passage. Those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, ignore me. But swept away is what happened to the people in the flood who were killed. To be taken away was a bad thing. You actually want to be left behind. It's a good thing to be left behind, according to this passage. The point that Jesus is getting at is he is coming, and as verse 36 says, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour, which means don't speculate. It's not necessary. Thirty years ago, I remember a televangelist who was very certain that one Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist, and therefore the end was coming. I think Gorbachev is still alive, so it's possible. Don't try and figure out when. All the language of the sun and the moon darkened is called apocalyptic language. It's meant to say, hey, if you were standing on a rift when an earthquake of of seven or more on the Richter scale hits, you're going to know it. Everyone's going to know it. You're not going to need a text saying, hey, an earthquake's hit. When Christ comes again, everyone will know it. Don't look for the age trying to figure it out. Instead, instead, stay alert, stay awake, be watchful, as he says in verses 42 and 44. How do we become watchful people? Well, let's think about the next four and a half weeks leading up to Christmas, and let's ask this question, how can we Advent well? I'm going to invite all of us to press pause on anxiety and fear, on responses of anger or escape, and even on self-focus, which is probably underneath all of it. I'm going to invite you to four Fs, if we can get through them. First is fast. Fast means take a break from. So I'm going to invite you to consider, if you need to, you may not all need to, to fast from Facebook, or Fox News, or the New York Times editorials, or binge-watching, or whatever feeds your anxiety, your anger, and your self-focus. You know the Holy Spirit will help you. I'm going to invite you to fast from whatever your natural tendency is relationally. If you're an extrovert, maybe take some extra time to be alone this Advent season. And if you're an introvert, push yourself out relationally this Advent season. You know the Spirit will guide you what you need to switch. The second is feast. Not just on food, but on the Word of God and prayer and hymns. On your way out, I'm going to invite everyone to pick up one of these guides. It's daily morning and evening prayer with scripture readings called the daily office. This goes back to the first couple centuries, especially when monasteries became the order of the day. And what they did in monasteries was they would pray six times a day. When the church in the Reformation developed, the Anglican church developed morning and evening prayer as a way for local parishes or individuals to order their days, saying, you don't need to be in a monastery to seek the Lord. Everyone should be doing it in their life. So I'm going to invite you to sacrifice up to 20 minutes in the morning 
and up to 20 minutes in the evening, or at least pick one, and to have Scripture and prayer and hymn filling your head this Advent season. Habits reform the heart's loves. So use this as an opportunity to collectively reorient ourselves to what really matters and what lasts. Thirdly, and I think we're going to end here, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Count the costs this Advent season. Remember that the victory that Jesus won was won through a cross, not through a sword. Peter tried to bring out the sword, and Jesus said, no, I'm going to lay down my life. And then he said, oh, and if you want to be my followers, you're going to have to take up your cross, die to self, follow me. If your faith in Jesus doesn't cost you something, it may not be faith in Jesus that you have. Jesus does not promise us happiness. Jesus does not promise us happiness. He offers us salvation, true life, and himself. He calls us to drop our self-lordship projects to find it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we enter this Advent season, open us to our own false hopes, the places where we hold on to the throne, and our lack of hope in the one true God, and reorient us towards you, the one who came at Christmas and who is coming again to restore and to right all things in whose name we pray. Amen.